Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about films. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave in my own personal experiences with the films that I talk about. I discuss the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. In many ways, I'm narrating my own story through the films that I discuss. Today's episode will be about Agnes Varda's 1962 film, Cleo from 5 to 7. This was a film that I saw sort of early in my cinema journey, and it had a big impact on me. It got me interested in more of Varda's work, and she's actually become one of my favorite directors. So I'm going to talk about Cleo from 5 to 7, I'm going to talk about Agnes Varda, and um, I hope that you stick around. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the podcast on a monthly basis, and you can also access lots of rewards and extras. You can find more information at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. At one level, you get a shout-out on each episode, so I'd like to give a shout-out to patrons Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, and Lindsay. If financial support isn't an option, consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher, telling your friends and followers about the podcast, or just sending an encouraging message to me. I'm on Facebook, and you can see all my social media accounts listed in the description of each episode. So, who is Agnes Varda? She's been making films since the 1950s. She is almost 90 years old. She is a woman of multivarious talents and abilities. She is a filmmaker and an artist that I greatly admire. And even though she's been around for decades, I would say she's only starting to get more popular attention in the last year or so. In 2017, she received an honorary Oscar. This year, in 2018, her latest documentary with the artist J.R. has been nominated for Best Documentary at the Academy Awards. So she's been getting more mainstream attention, I would say. I consider her a world treasure, a one-of-a-kind, unique person, and unique filmmaker and artist. I think she has a very um, interesting perspective on life and cinema and art. She is really, there's nobody like her. And I'll give you an example. When there was a lunch held for the nominees of the Academy Awards this year, she did not attend it. Instead, she sent a cardboard cutout of herself and various actors. I remember seeing a picture of Greta Gerwig. She was like holding the cardboard cutout and they put that as part of, I guess, the group picture or something. So this, I think, is an indication to you of who she is, that she is playful, she's delightful, but she's also not afraid to sort of buck convention and to do what she wants to do, and um, I think that makes her such a fascinating figure as well, that she's never able or never wanted to fit neatly into boxes or categories or to do what is expected and we've seen that throughout her entire life 
She was born in Belgium in 1928. As I said, she is 89 years old. And what's so interesting about Varda is how she comes to cinema. Because she does not start out as a big film buff or as someone from an early age who really wanted to be in film. She actually studied art history when she was a student at college. And she was a photographer before she ever directed her first film. She had not even seen many films when she directed her debut film, which was La Pointe Court. And that came out in 1954. And it comes out several years before what we would consider the beginning of the French New Wave. Um, it's kind of confusing. I'm not sure what film is considered the beginning of the French New Wave. I would say Francois Truffaut's The 400 Blows, but other people would maybe say something different. The critics may say something different. There's also Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless, which comes out in 1960. 400 Blows came out in 1959. But some people would argue that the new wave really starts with Agnes Varda's La Pointe Court in 1954. That the techniques that she was using, the low budget um, and things like that, that she was really um, the pioneer here. And some even call her the grandmother of the new wave. Um, but she is sometimes considered part of the new wave, really the only woman part of it. And sometimes she's also categorized as part of the left bank group, along with Chris Marker, Alain René, and sometimes Jacques Demy is included, and various other directors are sometimes included in the left bank group. I'll get back to the left bank group in a moment. First, I want to talk about the French new wave, because this is really important. And Cleo from 5 to 7 is a film that would fit into the French New Wave, absolutely, in its techniques, in its um, content, in the way that it was filmed. But of course, it's unique in that it's a woman directing it, and obviously Varda brings her own sense, her own sensibility to it, and she does things that other New Wave directors were not doing in some of their films. So the French New Wave, in case you don't know um, about it or much about it, and this this introduction to Varda or this sort of overview of her career is not intended to be extensive or any kind of substitute for actually reading about her or you know reading what other academics or researchers or biographers say about her. But I did want to give you an idea of who Varda is, what kind of films she makes, where she sort of fits in to some of these movements, and why her cinema is so important. So the French New Wave was a radical movement in cinema in the late 1950s and into the 1960s. It was primarily led by filmmakers who started first as cinephiles and film critics for the Cahiers du Cinéma. So those would be directors like Francois Truffaut, Jean-Luc Godard, Eric Ramey, Claude Chabrol. According to Emily Bickerton in the book A Short History of the Cahiers du Cinéma, quote, and I think this quote really gives you a sense of what the new wave was about. 
quote, suddenly the conventional studio settings, tight scenarios, and rules of editing were replaced with low-budget techniques and audacious working methods. Small teams shot scenes on the streets and in friends' apartments with mobile cameras and using direct sound. Takes and tracking shots grew unusually long. Experiments with editing led to the use of collage and jump cuts. The love affair with America brought in jazz and William Faulkner. The, ethnogra the ethnographic cinema verite practiced by Jean Rouge and Robert Flaherty met with noir plot lines full of guns, women, and motor cars. But for all the eulogies that have subsequently been devoted to the new wave, the movement was brief, over by 1965, unquote. So I think that gives you a sense of what the new wave was about. It was about shooting on the street. It was about lower budgets. It was about being outside the studio system. It was about films about young people. Um, and they were very influenced by America, by jazz, by... American films and noir and 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 all of that and um so Cleo from five to seven certainly fits into this Varda had a small team she had a low budget she filmed in the streets um and so it has that sensibility to it I think obviously but while Varda is considered part of the new wave there's also this other group that exists at the same time as the New Wave, and that's the Left Bank group. And um, it's, a, it's a bit different. Most critics, and I talk about this in my episode about Chris Marker's La Chate, most critics would place Chris Marker, Alain René, and Agnes Varda in the Left Bank group. But it's a bit of a fluid category, and critics will put different directors in it and take different directors out. What distinguished the left bank group um, were a few things. They did not come from a critical cinephile background. They came often from a, a more literary background, especially Chris Marker, who um, was a novelist and a writer before he started directing films. And um, so their films have a literary quality to them. Um, they take inspiration from literature Whereas the New Wave was taking inspiration from other films, from film history, from American films, and so on. The Left Bank group took more inspiration from literature. Uh, Alain René, who directed Night and Fog and Hiroshima Mon Amour, he worked with Marguerite Duras a few times, who was a really famous, still is considered a very famous French writer. Um, and Varda had some strong ideas about the connection between cinema and writing. And, um, and I would also say, especially with Chris Marker and Agnes Varda, I think there is a literary quality to their films. Um, they were friends. They were good friends. And um, in the voiceover, especially, there is this literary quality, I think. And the way that the films are written. Um, I was reading an article on the website Senses of Cinema, and they talk about this connection that Varda has between cinema and writing, or the things that she believes about it. So from that article, quote, 
central to any discussion of Varda must be her own concept concept of synecrature. Um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. <laughs> Literally meaning cinematic writing. This is a concept derived um, from the notion of the camera stilo, the camera pen, and goes well beyond the conventional notion of the director as auteur. What Varda's notion signifies is that the film has been authored by someone who not only writes, directs, edits, scouts, locations, casts, but that all aspects of the film have been chosen deliberately in order to create specific meanings. Um, this goes beyond the conventional notion of the auteur, which in terms of making meaning is considerably more passive than Varda's intellectually active idea of, of synecrature. Varda's commitment to synecrature is very apparent in her interviews and in her discussions of her own work, where her attention to detail and thoughtfulness are always very evident, as she says, um, and this is Varda, quote, a well-written film is also well-filmed. The actors are well-chosen. So are the locations, the cutting, the movement, the points of view, the rhythm of filming and editing have been felt and considered in the way a writer chooses the depth of meaning of sentences, the type of words, number of adverbs, paragraphs, asides, chapters which advance the story or break its flow. In writing, it's called style. In the cinema style, it is synecrature, unquote. So Varda, I think, is sort of looking at the totality of a film and putting a film together the way I guess a writer would put together a book or a novel and she is considering all those elements as she puts it together and that is what she did and um so the left bank group was also more concerned with politics than the French New Wave. Obviously, Jean-Luc Godard was a very political director, but some of the others were not quite as political. Whereas Chris Marker, Agnes Varda, they they have a little bit more of a political vent, a political bent, I would say. And I really feel like Varda defies categorization. She does not neatly fit into the New Wave for many reasons. She made many types of films, from short films to fiction films to documentaries. She was concerned with issues of gender and feminism, which was not what the New Wave was interested in. Um, not, that, not that some New Wave directors did not look at women's lives and do a very good job of that, um, but I wouldn't say it was the central focus of most of the New Wave directors. Often her films do centralize a woman's experience and subjectivity. And she takes inspiration, as I said, not necessarily from cinema itself, um, from the films that came before her, but more from art. Um, as her study of art history indicates, and art recurs throughout her filmography. But especially in Cleo, there are paintings in it. Um, I'm not sure who the artist is, but you'll see paintings in it of a woman with like a skeleton um, at her back. It's sort of the death haunting her. 
and Cleo from five to seven is about a woman very frightened of death. And also the Gleaners and I uh, includes visual art in it where she takes inspiration from some paintings. And that film came out in 2000. Her most recent film, Faces Places, is a collaboration with the artist J.R. Um, so she's obviously very influenced by visual art. Um, but she's also, I think, influenced by literature, by using this idea of cinematic writing to create her films. Um, she also doesn't limit herself to film. She was a photographer before she became a director. She's held art exhibitions, um, beautiful art exhibitions, which were documented in 2008's The Beaches of Agnes, which I highly recommend. I, I love The Gleaners and I. I love The Beaches of Agnes. I have done an episode on this podcast about her 1985 film Vagabond, which is another film that centralizes a woman's experience and her subjectivity in the world. So Agnes Varda is complex, multifaceted. She is a wide-ranging artist who mixes art forms and practices different kinds of art. So I don't think she can be categorized, you know, purely. Like, oh, she's the new way, or oh, she's the left bank. Really, she's Agnes Varda. And she has created a body of work that is stimulating. It's intellectually stimulating. It's thought-provoking. It's artistic and creative. It's deeply felt. There's so much emotion in her films, especially her biographical films, her documentaries, whether she's doing films about people who live on the margins of society, as she did in The Gleaners and I, or whether she's putting the camera on her own loved ones, like she does with the different films she's done about her husband, her late husband, Jacques Demy. She is someone where there is always deep thought and deep feeling in her work. And um, I can't think of another filmmaker like her. And so that is why I call her a world treasure, because I really cherish her work. And I cherish, I cherish what she's contributed to the world and to humanity through her films. And so obviously I recommend everything she's ever made to you. Um, but we're going to talk about Cleo from five to seven. And this for me is the film that um, it was my first Agnes Varda film. It was my introduction to her work. I don't think it's necessarily completely representative of her work. Um, I don't think you could hold this film up and say, this is everything that Agnes Varda is interested in because her films are so wide ranging and they're so diverse in their subject matter. But there are things in there like gender and time and um, different themes in the film that I do think connects with some of her other films, obviously. Um, but this was my first Varda, and it led to all the other films by her that I ended up watching. So I think with some directors, we have to start somewhere. And for me, Cleo is where I started. And it's been really interesting to return to this film and to think about its themes and to think about um, everything um, about it and to really talk about it on the podcast and so I've enjoyed revisiting it and I 
can't wait to talk about it with you. And, and um, so that's what we're going to do. So Cleo from 5 to 7 is part of a series that I'm doing about formative art house films in my life. I got really interested in art house cinema in 2011, but it was a process even before then. The first episode in the series on these formative art house films was Carl Theodore Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc, which I watched when I was a teenager and it really awakened me to the power of cinema. The next episode was Chris Marker's La Jete, also released in 1962, same year as Cleo from 5 to 7. That film got me really interested in European art house cinema, in French film, and this happened in 2011. 2011 was a really um, important transformative year for me. That was a year when I got really into European art house cinema for the first time. So I got into Chris Marker, I got into Francois Truffaut, I got into Ingmar Bergman, and I got into Agnes Varda. Cleo from 5 to 7 is one of the films that I watched in 2011. And really watching it now in 2018, this is the first time that I think I've watched it since then. So it's been really fascinating to revisit these films and to think about um, how much I've changed from 2011 to now, you know, seven years, how I've watched more films, obviously, how I've grown as a cinephile, how I've sort of figured out what I like and what I don't like or what compels me about a film. And I think that I've matured not just, you know, as a person in seven years, but also as a film lover. And I've learned more and I'm very different than who I was in 2011 when I was just discovering these kinds of films. Since then, I've watched hundreds of these films and they've become really important to me and they've shaped my identity in really profound ways. And I don't really know who I would be without these films and without this passion that I have for cinema now. And of course, a big difference between 2011 and now is that I didn't have a podcast. Um, I created this podcast in late 2016. So recently celebrated the one year anniversary and also the 50th episode. So um, this, this podcast is a journey as well. And so it's really nice to rewatch this film and then to be able to talk about it with you and um, to share my thoughts and feelings, which is something that I couldn't do in 2011 and that I couldn't do before this podcast that is really a labor of love and that I put a lot of work into. And um, I watched a lot of different things. I read a lot of different things to bring you this episode, and I hope that it can enrich your understanding of Cleo from 5 to 7 or introduce you to the film or get you interested in it. There will be spoilers in this episode because I'm going to talk about the plot, talk about things that happen in the film. That's just how I am in these episodes. I want to be able to talk freely about a film. So what Cleo from 5 to 7 is really about, as I was watching it, it what came to mind was Mrs. Dalloway, a book by Virginia Woolf, who I adore. She's one of my favorite writers. And what Mrs. Dalloway does, and what was so revolutionary about Woolf and about this book, Mrs. Dalloway, 
was that it was about the day in the life of a woman. And Wolf was elevating that material. Wolf was saying that, you know, a book doesn't have to be about battles and about war and about all these things for it to matter. That the day in the life of one woman is substantial and meaningful and that that is a worthy topic of literature too. And so I think what we see with Cleo from five to seven is something similar is that this is not really a day in the life of a woman. It's about two hours in the life of a woman. It's from that five o'clock to that seven o'clock. Um, although I'll talk about time in a minute, how it's not really five to seven. Um, this is a film about a really a woman in crisis, a woman in, in a liminal state. Cleo is a French singer. She's this very beautiful, glamorous woman. And she is supposed to get a diagnosis later in the day that will confirm or not that she has stomach cancer. So she's waiting to hear about the results of a test that will tell her whether she has cancer or not. So this is a very serious subject. It's somebody waiting on a test result, waiting to see if they're sick, if they have an illness. And it's scary and it's destabilizing for Cleo. And it's really just about her going through those two hours um, right before she's supposed to meet the doctor or call the doctor and get the test results. So we see her anxiety, we see her fear, we see her um, going through so many emotions, meeting with friends, she meets a soldier um, who's on leave during the Algerian war. Um, so she meets people and there's this whole sort of transformation that takes place. And I'm going to talk about all of that, but I just wanted to recap, I guess, or, or sort of summarize what this film is about. It's really about this woman waiting for these test results and what she does in that time period while she's waiting. So I want to talk about different themes in the film and that's how I'm going to talk about the film. Sometimes I go chronologically and talk about scenes and stuff like that. But as I was watching the film and when I was taking my notes and typing them up, because I write by hand, I write a lot of stuff by hand, even now in this digital age. Um, I started to see themes and patterns and connections. And so I'd rather focus on those and that be our entry into the film. So the first really major theme of the film is time. And um, there is this documentary from 2005 called Cleo from 5 to 7 Remembrances. And Varda made the film in 2005 where she um, she interviews uh, the stars of the film and she um, she reflects you know, on the film and, and, um, what it was like to film it and, um, and all kinds of things like that. She talks to, to Corinne Marchand who plays Cleo and, um, all kinds of people who were involved in the film from the producers to the actors, you know, um, she tends to do this with a lot of her films. I've seen quite a few 
um, documentaries about her films. <laughs> she did the same thing with the Gleaners and I, where she revisited the people that had been in the film and, um, she's done it with some of Jacques Demy's films, her, her late husband. So it, again, Varda is just this fascinating figure. And I think the documentaries about her films are always just as fascinating as the films themselves. And so much of her personality comes out and you get, I think, a window into her thinking process and, um, and things like that. I watched this film on Filmstruck, which is a really amazing site for film lovers and cinephiles. And so Filmstruck, um, has the Criterion collection. It's called the Criterion Channel and they have really hundreds of Criterion titles and, um, Several of the titles, um, many of them will have extra features. So the Clio from five to seven, um, part of the website has this feature, this remembrances documentary made in 2005. And in that documentary, Varda talks about something very important. And that's why I want to bring it up. She talks about how there is subjective time and objective time. And when I first saw Cleo in 2011, I also saw this documentary. At that time, the Criterion Collection was on Hulu, and they had some extras, I think. And I remember being so struck by that idea of subjective and objective time. It absolutely sort of blew my mind, because I had never thought about it in that way. Um, and that's why it has just stayed with me for years. It stayed with me ever since I saw it. Subjective time is how we experience and feel time. You know, how we can say, oh, it, it, um, it went by, uh, so slowly or, oh, time flies. You know, this experience of time sometimes where things can go feel like they go so quickly and then other times it feels like they go by so slowly. Well, not really. It's the way you're experiencing it. The minutes are the same. The hours are the same. And that's what objective time is. It's this measurement, this, this sort of unchangeable measurement of time in minutes, seconds, hours. Um, and so what Varda says is that she wanted to blend them together, this objective time and this subjective time. And, um, to that end, the film is uh, divided into chapters. And so it's divided into these um, measurements of time, you know, five minutes, ten minutes. And we actually see that on the screen, um, the way she's, she does that. Um, and she divides Cleo's life into these segments of time. But then, of course, there is Cleo experiencing that time. And for her, because she's waiting for these test results, the time is going by slowly and sort of probably agonizingly slow in some way. And also in that documentary, Varda said that five to seven, I guess in French, is sort of means a roll in the hay. So I guess that's sort of like supposed to um, refer to like a rendezvous or, or something like that. And she also points out that technically the film does not follow Cleo from five to seven. It really follows her from five to six thirty because it's a film that's only an hour and a half, but obviously five to seven just sounds better. It has, 
um, just has a better sound to it. Um, the film takes place on June 21st, 1961. That's what Varda tells us. So we have a specific date when, um, she set the, the story that it's supposed to take place on June 21st, 1961. So, as I said before, this is really about a film about waiting, about, and I think we've all been in those situations. It doesn't necessarily have to be, oh, we're about to get a test result. It can be somebody's in the hospital. And I've certainly been in those situations where I'm in the waiting room and, and it's scary. You know, it's a very scary experience. And throughout the film, Cleo does a range of things. Mainly she's walking around a lot, but she'll do light things. Like she goes to a hat shop at one time or she watches a short film. Um, Varda puts a film within a film. <laughs> she did this little short film that starred Jean-Luc Godard and Anna Karina. And um, it's, it's a very sort of lighthearted uh, sort of fun part of the film. And, um, so it has its moments of lightness and I guess gaiety at times, but she's always haunted by this diagnosis, this impending diagnosis. And, um, so this film for me is really about the agony of waiting. It's about this dread that can really consume us. And like I said, it can be something other than a diagnosis. It can be, you know, anything that you're waiting for anything that you that is uncertain and you don't know what's going to happen i think that can be really uh difficult and because she's waiting for these results i i see her as sort of a liminal figure and i don't tend to like to use really complicated or scholarly words or academic jargon but i think liminal is a really good word to say and a good way to describe it, how she's sort of in between states and um she's sort of suspended and i think um what i really like about the film is sort of the plotlessness that there really is no plot there's no big exciting stuff that's happening she is with friends at times she's walking around the streets at times she's walking in a park she meets a man it's it's this sort of plotless sort of meandering thing that she does, um, Cleo. But I think it sort of fits what the film is about, about this idea of waiting, of being suspended, of being in between things. She's in limbo, you know, and yet she's very alive in the moment and she's moving and she's observing um, whether it's, people on the streets of Paris or people in a park. It's so, um, I think that plotlessness goes really well with this idea of waiting, of not knowing what's coming and, um, and how she's really suspended. You know, she's suspended between health, good health and bad health of something of life and death, you know, and, mortality and she's really in between these two things and she doesn't know yet where she's going to end up or where she belongs and I think part of why this film has 
become so iconic is because of, I would say, of all Varda's films that I've seen, it has this glamour to it. It has this beauty to it with, um, with Cleo herself because she's a pop singer and Corinne Marchand is gorgeous. She's blonde and thin and ethereal and she's stylish. I love when she's wearing that polka dot dress. And I loved learning in that Remembrances documentary that, um, Varda loves polka dots. And, um, so there's something very feminine about the film and very glamorous and beautiful, especially the first half because, Cleo is so captivating. Corrine is very captivating and beautiful and stylish. And, um, so there's this veneer, I think, of glamour to the film. And, um, I think that's part of why it's become so iconic. But I wouldn't say that that represents Varda's body of work. She tends to focus on people who are on the margins, people who are everyday, ordinary, you know, she's not really concerned with the elite or the, the really gorgeous or the glamorous, you know, um, I wouldn't categorize her films in that way, but this film is sort of unique, um, as far as, you know, the Varda films that I've seen in that it does focus on this very beautiful, glamorous, um, woman, but I think she uses that in a very interesting way to explore gender, to explore the male gaze, to explore women's lives and what they have to deal with. Um, Cleo is both admired because she's beautiful. And there's so many scenes in the film where she's walking down the streets and people can't take their eyes off of her. You know, she is watched. She is seen. She is visible. She is viewed as very beautiful. But at the same time, she's sort of loathed in a way. She's seen as, I think, childish and selfish. And um, she has this assistant who really doesn't have much sympathy for her fears and anxieties about this diagnosis. Um, the assistant seems a bit jealous or just a bit annoyed by her. Or probably thinks that she's spoiled. And so this first part of the film in the way that it focuses on Cleo and it's so glamorous, you know, Cleo goes back to her apartment at one time and she puts on this satin robe that has these ostrich feathers at the collar. And it's just so, um, so beautiful. It reminds you of like an old classic Hollywood film, like a Marilyn Monroe. I was sort of reminded of Marilyn Monroe when I saw Cleo and, um, especially at the first part of the film where she's very dolled up and very feminine and very beautiful. And, uh, but it reminded me of a recent documentary that I actually really liked, um, called, and it's, it's about Lady Gaga and it's a Netflix documentary that came out in 2017, I think. And it's called Gaga five foot two. And I was really impressed with this documentary. I was impressed with Gaga's willingness to be vulnerable and to be raw and to share her struggle with uh, chronic pain that she goes through. I think she has fibromyalgia and it was this documentary that I just was really captured by and that I really liked because I felt like she was being honest and I felt like she was being authentic and I felt like we were getting a view of a pop star 
that was real. You know, pop stars are so manufactured nowadays. There is an artificiality about them. There is this image that is so constructed. And so you never know if you're really seeing the real person or not. But with this Gaga documentary, I thought that's what we were seeing. And I thought a really brave thing was how she talked about pain and how she allowed the camera to show the physical pain that she went through. Because so much of the time, we only see the image. We only see what is constructed. And I felt like the film was deconstructing what a pop star is and what a pop star should show. And, um, you know, we want to see the dancing. We want to see the lights. We want to see the glitter. We want to see the beauty. We don't want to see the behind the scenes breakdown. We don't want to see a woman in pain. You know, so much of the time women are not allowed to be angry. Women are not allowed to break down and be scared and without some kind of judgment being attached to it. Women are not supposed to be fragile. You know, we're supposed to be strong and empowered and all of these things that in real life, I don't feel like we really are. You know, we're still, you know, just look at the Me Too movement and the stories that are being told. It's this false idea that there is empowerment, that women are all of a sudden powerful. Um, in our society in general, we don't let people break down and be upset and be unstable or destabilized by something or be emotional without us being called hysterical and you know and all these things or acting like we are whining or complaining or that we won't pity you know and um so I thought it was really brave of Gaga to show pain you know because so much of the time women are supposed to hide pain they're supposed to hide fear they're supposed to hide any sort of ugly or unacceptable emotions um and especially i think if you're privileged in some way you know say you're attractive or say you have money if you're a celebrity or a singer or whoever you're supposed to be grateful you know you have it all um you're not supposed to be able to talk about your pain or to talk about your health if it's not the greatest, you know. And so I thought Gaga was really brave for that. And I thought that what Cleo showed is that's what Cleo's about. It's about a woman who is in crisis. It's about a woman who's scared. It's about and how her fears are very legitimate. This is an absolutely legitimate fear that Cleo has, that she may have cancer, that she may die, that there may be something wrong with her body, and that she may lose her health and lose her life. That is very real and legitimate and valid for you to be upset about that, for you to cry, for you to get scared, to, you know, to get emotional. And yet she's not allowed to be that in this film because she's beautiful and you know blonde and she's supposed to be perfect she's not supposed to break down and women in general are not supposed to break down they're not supposed to be hysterical you know quote in quote marks um 
it's just there's not space for that. There's not space to be emotional or grief stricken or frightened. Um, and I think that's a really damaging, damaging thing, really. And so because she can't really express these emotions, she feels very lonely in her life. And something that occurred to me much more, something that I noticed when I was watching it for a second time, was the loneliness that Cleo experiences. I don't know if it hit me quite as hard as when I watched it the first time, but the second viewing... It was very apparent to me how lonely she is, that the people in her life, her assistant, she has a lover, um, they don't really care about her. She can't be herself with them. Um, you know, when she meets her assistant in a cafe, she really, Cleo breaks down, she shares her fear. And, and we hear sort of this narration of the assistant, like in her head and she is like putting down Cleo and she thinks she's hysterical, but then on the outside, she pretends to be sympathetic when she really isn't. At one point, Lee, Cleo is visited by her lover in her apartment, um, but she doesn't share with him what she's going through or how scared she is. He doesn't want to hear about it anyway. He wants this beautiful doll. He wants an uncomplicated, beautiful woman. And she's not really allowed to be anything else. Um, she really has no one in her life that she can be real with, that she can be vulnerable with. Not her assistant, not her lover. And I think this isolates her a lot, especially in the first half of the film. She's so afraid, but no one cares. They think she's too emotional. They think she's hysterical. They think she's overreacting. There is nobody in her life to accept her as she is. And there's this really gorgeous scene where she's singing this very sad song. And she starts to break down and she starts to cry, you know, because she is in so much pain and no one understands and no one cares. And she just feels very unloved, I think. And she comes off as a person who, even though she has beauty, even though she's a, a singer and she has a measure of fame and people know who she is, um, she still does not feel loved or seen or connected to somebody else. Now, later on, she will meet a, her friend, um, Dorothy, um, who is like a model and she tells her that she's scared and, and her friend seems to be more sympathetic, but their interaction with each other doesn't last very long. And so that does seem to be an authentic relationship that she does have. And she seems to be like a friend who really, um, cares about Cleo and sympathizes with her plight. But, um, the loneliness of the film really struck me. Um, when I watched it this second time, I mean, is, is there a more lonely feeling than what Cleo is going through that fear? She's fearing for her life. She doesn't know what the doctor's going to tell her. I would imagine that's a very lonely experience. Um, 
but also to have these people in your life who really just don't get it and think that you're just overreacting and that you're ridiculous. And it's really, it really delegitimizes what you're feeling. I would think that that would be very difficult and that would make you feel even more alone and even more isolated. So I want to talk more about death and mortality and illness and those subjects because this is obviously, these are obviously very important themes to the film. Cleo is fearing for her, morta her mortality and um, because she doesn't know what the doctor's going to tell her. And um, she looks in the mirror a lot in the film. And, um, I would imagine that there are a lot of criticisms of that or a lot of examinations of that as her narcissism, her self-absorption, the male gaze is obviously at work there in some ways. But I saw something a bit different with all of the mirror looking that she does in the film. She does it several times. She's in bed at one point and she has a hand mirror that she holds up. She's in a cafe and she looks in the mirror. Um, there's several moments when she does. Um, in one scene, she's looking in the mirror and she says, quote, ugliness is a kind of death. As long as I'm beautiful, I'm even more alive than the others, unquote. She is very fragile and raw and raw and she's undone by this test and by these impending results very destabilized very in crisis about it i think that her beauty and her physical being you know seeing herself physically i think it's how she holds on to normality in some way I think she thinks if she's beautiful on the outside, then nothing can be wrong with her body on the inside. And if you think about it, we still judge health in this way. We still judge health based on how people look. We make judgments about people's bodies based on what they look. We see a fat body as a diseased body, and we think of a thin body as a healthy body. But as, you know fat activists in particular and body positive activists have forced us to acknowledge that's just not true. There are plenty of thin people who get diseases and there are fat people who are perfectly healthy. And that really is the truth, you know, that you cannot look at somebody on the outside and tell what they look like on the in, and tell what is wrong with them or if something is wrong with them on the inside. And of course, our value as people should not be based on whether we have healthy bodies or not. That all people should be respected, whether they have an illness or not. But of course, we know that if we become ill, if we become um, unhealthy, that our lives will change. And the way people treat us will change. Um, 
And so, yeah, I guess she could be narcissistic. And she is someone who's very absorbed in her own world and her own life. But I think looking in the mirror, I think it's this way for her to um, reconnect with her physical body. Because that is the only way you can see yourself is when you look into a mirror. You know, that is how you can verify or confirm what you look like. And it can reconnect you with your physical appearance. Um, I don't know if I've shared this story before on the podcast. I probably have. But I still remember when I was in high school. And it's it's happened throughout my life where I have these moments of like unreality. Where I don't feel real. Where I don't feel con- connected with my body. Where I feel almost disembodied. And I remember this time in high school I was in the bathroom because we would change classes and I w- I've had anxiety my whole life and the halls would be packed with kids and I hated it. And so I would go stand in the bathroom until people cleared out and then I would walk down the halls and stuff because I just hated the, cr- the crush of people. And I remember this time looking in the mirror and I could not for the life of me connect with what I was seeing. I didn't feel real to myself I had this very strange feeling of mortality at the same time that this is all there is of me that I am this body I am this face and this is all that I am you know and this will end one day um it was just strange it was a strange experience to have in high school but I've always felt that unreality and so I would just stare at myself in the mirror Like, that's me. That's me. That I am alive. I do exist. Um, I don't know how to put it into words. I guess maybe if you've experienced it, you would know. But it was this profound disconnection with myself of my bodily form, you know. I just couldn't connect to that, to the face and the body that I saw in the mirror. And I think Cleo's doing maybe something in the opposite way where she's looking at her face, looking at herself as a way to confirm that she is alive and she is here and she's there and there's her face and she is alive. That is the argument I want to make because she looks at herself so many times that I think it's, I think it's more than narcissism. I think it's, oh, I'm still here. I'm still here. You know, I'm still beautiful. There, Nothing can be wrong with me if I'm beautiful. But of course, that isn't true. Just because you're beautiful doesn't mean you can't get sick. Um, it's just not true. But I do want to talk about the male gaze uh, for a moment. Because that's a big part of the film. Um, and a lot of people... Uh, have brought it up, you know, this, this male gaze. She is someone who, as I said before, is sane. She's in the polka dots early in the film. She's blonde. She's beautiful. The way she walks, she just tends to sort of float across the street. And of course the mirrors, you know, she always is looking at herself. Um, I mean, I interpret it a little bit differently than maybe other people do. But she is concerned with how she looks. Her life is defined a lot by how she looks. Um, But at the same time, I don't think that she is ever just an object. 
you know, and Varda, that's, I think, what a, a female filmmaker can bring to a film is the emotions of a woman, the experience of a woman, understanding those complexities. She is never just an object. She has a certain level of agency, you know, and an, and an awareness of the ways in which she is objectified, you know. There's this great scene where Cleo's talking about everything that she does for her lover, how she shows interest in him, but how he doesn't hardly show any interest in her or want to know much about her life. And she says this wonderful line, quote, I'm too good for men, unquote. I think that's going to be my new um, mantra or motto. I'm too good for men. Okay. I, I just love that. Um, but there is a transformation in the film and it comes about halfway through the film and um and Varda in the remembrances documentary talks about this transformation this sort of uh you know change in this journey that Cleo goes through from the first half of the film to the second half and she talks about how in the first half of the film Cleo is seen by others She's seen by her assistant, her lover, other people on the streets. But at that halfway point where the transformation happens, where Cleo is just so fed up and she takes off her wig and we see her real hair. She takes off the polka dot dress and puts on a black dress um, and then puts on um, a necklace, which happened to be Varda's. Varda said that she brought in her own necklace collection and that several things in Cleo's room were Varda, were Varda's, um, like the swing that she swings on, I think. And there's these beautiful wings that are hanging on the wall. And, um, so it's really this sort of stripping down that happens in the, at that halfway point. She's sort of unpeeling these layers of artifice that have been on her. And she breaks free from that and she starts to see, she starts to be the one who looks at others. She watches people people on the street. She watches the film, the short film I told you about, with Jean-Luc Godard and Anna Karina. Varda says that she considers this, in her words, a feminist approach. That having that transformation happen at the halfway point was a feminist approach that Varda was taking. And she really sees Cleo as redefining herself in the second half of the film, of coming into her own, of taking ownership over herself, I guess maybe becoming an active agent in her own life. Instead of being seen, instead of being watched, she observes, she watches, and she goes into that more active mode rather than in a passive mode, I guess you could say. She leaves her apartment. And she goes back onto the streets of Paris. That's where the film was uh, done, was in Paris. And Varda said, really, um, she chose Paris because it was, you know, obviously near where she lived and she didn't need travel expenses. And that would keep the budget low. <laughs> and um, so that's one reason why they did leave it um why they did film in Paris. And so a big part of the second part of the film after this transformation that Cleo undergoes, this stripping down is when she meets a man. Um, she goes to a park and she's walking around 
And um, she meets this man who starts talking to her. And his name is Antoine. And he's a soldier on leave from the Algerian War. And um, the Algerian War actually ended in 1962. But as I told you before, this film, the day it is set on is June 21st, 1961. So the Algerian War would have been taking place in 1962, it ended with Algeria gaining independence from France, which had been a colonial occupier of that country. Um, so Antoine has seen death. He's been in this war and um, he's seen death, but she fears it very deeply, obviously. And she doesn't know him. This is the first time that they've ever met. But she immediately, just after a little bit of them talking, she tells him about the test results that she's waiting for. So there is this really immediate uh, intimacy and comfort between the two of them. And he convinces her to meet the doctor in person instead of calling. Because she was just going to call the doctor later that afternoon. But he tells her, no, you should go meet him in person. And um, so they they seem to connect immediately. And um, she even tells him her real name. Her real name is not Cleo. Her real name is Florence. So her telling him her name, it it showed to me that she really trusts him. You know, that there is something about him um, that she feels free and open with. And um, so they do go to the hospital. They go hand in hand. Um, they just so quickly have this intimacy. You know, they're already holding hands. And um, they go and they look for the doctor. And um, they they walk around together. They get on this trolley or bus or whatever, and they're just walking around the streets of Paris together. And something about it, those scenes of Cleo with Antoine, really reminded me of Chris Marker's La Jete, Um, also came out in 1962. And it reminded me of the man and the woman in that story, and how when they're together, they just sort of walk around. You know, they just love being in each other's company. And I got a similar sense with Cleo and Antoine. So Cleo meets the doctor. He shows up and he tells her that she does have cancer and that she'll need two months of chemotherapy. And um, Antoine is just on leave from the war, but he has to return to it that day, I believe. And so... Their interaction with each other is very brief. It's a very small part of the film at the end, really, um, or near the end. But those few minutes together, or however long that they spend together in the film, it has really made an impact on her, and it has helped her. And even when she hears this really kind of devastating news, it confirms everything that she had feared throughout the film because the film starts with the tarot reading which has become really famous that opening sequence that is in color when the rest of the film is in black and white and this tarot reading where the tarot reader basically sees like death in Cleo's future and there are different bad omens throughout the film like Cleo breaking a mirror and at one point they um 
she comes across an area where a man had been killed. So there's all these sort of dark um, omens and foreshadowings that are placed throughout the film. Um, and Cleo is superstitious and Cleo, um, she feels those things and they do make her afraid. So this is really the worst case scenario that she does have cancer that it confirms everything that she had feared throughout the entire film. Um, but at the same time, the doctor says you'll need chemotherapy, but you should be okay. So it's not necessarily a death sentence. But her interaction with Antoine has really made a difference for her. And she, even though she's facing this devastating diagnosis, she says, in, like in the final scene, that she doesn't feel afraid anymore. Um, and so I think part of Cleo's transformation really from this very anxious, scared, sort of, um, destabilized person who is, um, is worried and is afraid and all of these things by the end of the film, that's not who Cleo is anymore. She doesn't feel that fear. Um, but that's not all she was feeling in this film. She was also feeling lonely. She was feeling disconnected. She was feeling unloved. And I think what she found with Antoine, it was not necessarily love. You know, they only known each other a little while. <laughs> um, not even an hour have they known each other. So it's not love necessarily, but it is connection. It is kindness. It is care. You know, when you feel like somebody cares about you, when you feel that someone sees you and understands you. And so I think what she feels by the end of the film is connection. And she started it with none. She started it with loneliness and fear and anxiety. But through having a connection with another person where she's really herself. I mean, remember at the beginning with the lover, she doesn't tell him anything she's feeling. She doesn't share the fear or the concern or the worry. So with Antoine, she does share those things and she feels safe that she can share those things. And he doesn't dismiss her. He doesn't act like what she's feeling or fearing is invalid or stupid. He doesn't say that she's being hysterical. He doesn't make her feel like there's something wrong with her because she's scared. Um, he shows her kindness and he shows her compassion. And those can be very powerful things. And they are for Cleo. And so I think what she feels by the end of this film is a sense of connection. Even though he has to return to the Algerian war, she knows that he will be with her in some way. That I guess his spirit will be with her. And she gives him her address. So there's obviously the promise or the possibility in the future that the two of them will meet again, that they may strike up a relationship. Um, but I think she feels seen and heard and respected and cared for 
And I think that sense of deep, deep connection with another person is what helps her endure that diagnosis. And I think if she had been alone, it would have been harder. We need to be connected with other people. That's an important part of being human and being alive. We need to feel like we matter to other people and that they care about us. And I think when we don't have that, there is like a death inside of us that we feel dead inside or we can feel that way. And it is just absolutely essential to our lives. And so I think that's what Cleo finds is a connection, an authentic, real connection with another person. And it happens briefly, but it maybe sometimes it's not about the, the quantity, but the quality that you could talk to a person for 10 minutes. But if it's a really meaningful conversation, that means a whole lot more than an hour of platitudes and small talk. And, um, I think that's what Cleo finds that she goes from this woman who is lonely and scared and on her own to by the end of it not feeling as scared and feeling like she is connected with somebody else and that she can get through this she can get through that diagnosis and um i think that's just a really i think that's a beautiful message of the film i think that out of everything in the film i do think that that message will probably stay with me the most um is that maybe that kind of connection is possible and that cleo finds that for herself and she finds it through being herself she's not in the ostrich feathers anymore she's not in the polka dot dress she's in her black dress with her real hair showing you know she's being herself she's not being anything else she's just being florence not necessarily being cleo anymore She's being authentic and real and honest about who she is and what she feels. And, um, and through that vulnerability, she's able, I think, to connect to Antoine, to be open to connecting to Antoine. And, um, I think that's a really beautiful aspect of this film for me personally is that connection that she feels with him and it's not really sexual it's not it's not like that i think this is like a genuine portrait of a man and a woman connecting in a really deep way i don't know if i've really seen that in film very often it's sort of a rare thing to see a man and a woman connect in this way to see a man interact with a woman and not completely sexualize her. It doesn't mean that there's not some of that there. There's flirtation and he asked for her picture and all of that. But I still think that he treats her as sort of an equal and he treats her with respect. Um, and takes her worries and her fears and her feelings seriously. And I don't think he dismisses them. So...
I think that's really interesting, that relationship between the two of them. So this woman who starts off lonely and in crisis and struggling, by the end of the film, I think she's a very different woman. And I think there is a transformation that takes place there where she is able to cope with it because she knows that she's not alone anymore, that she has someone and that someone has given her strength and made her feel less alone in the world. And I think that can be really powerful and really important in our lives to feel that. Well, I think I have said everything I wanted to say about the film. These are all the notes that I took and the things that I was thinking about. I think watching the film for a second time has been really enriching. And I think I've taken more from it than I did the first time. You know, when I first watched it in 2011, I was just starting out with cinema. I didn't know a lot about it. I hadn't watched a lot of like art house films or classic films or anything. And so I think what I bring to it the second time is more knowledge and is, uh, more, um, I think just like a deeper understanding of the story because lots changed in my life in seven years and I've gone through things and, I think about things in a different way. And so I'm really glad that I revisited this film because it was so formative for me. Um, it was one of the early art house films that I watched that centered a woman that was directed by a woman that took seriously the life and concerns of a woman. And I now try to focus more on women filmmakers and I try to do episodes about films by women filmmakers as much as I can. And, um, revisiting this film has been a real pleasure and, um, I've really enjoyed it so much. And I hope that you'll watch the film or rewatch the film. Um, it's definitely Varda's most famous film, I think, but I hope that if you do watch the film, um, that you also explore more of Varda's work. I've seen so many of her films now. I mean, The Gleaners and I, The Beaches of Agnes, Vagabond. Um, there's so many. There's so many films that she's done. I haven't seen Faces Places yet, uh, but I do want to see it. It's just tremendous and monumental what she has done all the films that she has made and they span decades and they capture different times of history she's done a documentary about the black panthers she did a documentary about cuba in the 1960s she did documentaries and films about california i think in the 1970s um she's really a woman who has captured so many different eras not only of her own life, but of all of our lives and, um, of so, just captured so much history, I think through her films. And, um, it's just amazing to think what she's done in almost 90 years. I mean, most of us have not even done a fraction of that. And I'm glad that she's getting more attention and recognition because she absolutely deserves it. And Cleo is a great example of 
the gifts that she possesses. But she made so many other great films as well. You can listen to my episode about Vagabond. Um, and definitely watch that film. It's just, I love that film, Vagabond. That's another famous film by her, I would say. Um, so definitely seek out her work. There's a lot of it on Filmstruck. There's some of it on Fandor. They have quite a few of her films. Um, I don't think Hulu or Netflix has any of her work, but, um, but those are two streaming sites that you can look to if you want to watch more of her films. And I would start definitely with Vagabond, uh, after Cleo and, I definitely recommend The Gleaners and I. I would say those three are absolutely essential. And then just work your way out from there and just explore her work. That's the fun of it, is just to explore and discover. And um, you, you can't go wrong with Varda. You definitely can't. She's given us so many great thought-provoking, creative, innovative, beautiful films and um, I'm just so grateful for her. So I'll stop here. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.